You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 534 of this podcast. Today is January 10th, 2023, and also a Tuesday. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about some controversial things. I know, I know, you're shocked. Can't believe it. That's so unlike me. But, alas, we have some very interesting controversies to discuss and go over, and I just can't help myself. I just can't help it. Starting us off, 10 boys versus 10 girls were left unsupervised in a house for five days, and the results were wildly different. Megan Quinn writes, January 6th, 2023, over at YourTango.com, about this Channel 4 docuseries titled Boys and Girls Alone. Back in 2002, 10 boys in one uh, iteration of this experiment were put into a house, and then in a different iteration, 10 girls were put in a house. So not 10 boys and 10 girls altogether mixed, but 10 boys in the one case, 10 girls in the other case. Five days, fully stocked, all of the food and the necessaries. And get this, the boys were actually all given a cooking class before going in. But how do you think it ended? (laughs) Even with a cooking class, the boys trashed the place. They were squirting each other with squirt guns and hitting each other. One particular boy became the target of harassment and bullying by the other boys He got picked on, you know, day two or three, some of the boys are trying to clean paint off the walls and trying to tidy up just a little bit, but by and large, they were wild and raucous and ate everything that had sugar in it and whatever was easy to process. Maybe they threw a frozen pizza in the oven, but that was about it. Didn't do a lot of cooking and the whole place was just a mess at the end of five days. Cameras set up, you'll be glad to know, cameras all over the house in case somebody was going to be in mortal danger, then the uh, folks putting on this docuseries could intervene, step in, uh, protect them from themselves, these boys. But they were just uh, being rambunctious, rowdy boys, right? The girls, by contrast, behaved very, very differently. For instance, From the jump, one girl took over the cooking, but they all pitched in. They all helped. And if one of them was hurt or sad or upset about something, the other girls rallied around to comfort, to encourage, to nurture, to soothe, and to be with whichever girl was upset. And 
they kept the place tidy. They kept it organized. They put things away where they should go. They were more cooperative. They were more sympathetic. They kept the house in better order. And even before they left, they did a quick tidy up and cleaned the place. And it, it was a very different house, right? It was, it was a very different house at the end of the five days experiment versus when the boys went in. And so I'm reading through this yourtango.com write-up about it. And I'll put a link in the episode description. You can go check out some of the clips that uh, are embedded in this piece over at Your Tango. But some of the tweets, some of the tweets from folks responding, reading, and making uh, conclusions and assessments and judgments accordingly, some of the comments uh, are, I, I think, frustrating and unfortunate. Basically, <laughs> the conclusion uh, some come to is that girls would be better leaders in society because of this, right? This is our proof positive that the, the boys are not fit for leadership, as has been the case for most of human history. The boys who grow up to be men are making a mess of things, and here's how it starts. And the girls, meanwhile, they would make a much more orderly society, and that's what we want. And, uh, and basically, what if, if I may put perhaps too fine a point on it, what good are boys? Who needs men? Who needs boys? Uh, you know, the, the question I have, and, uh, and this is not maybe the direction that anybody's going to go with it, but here it is anyways, what would it look like if a similar kind of experiment were conducted with all of the, you know, guidelines and guard wires and all the rest, you know, set up a perimeter around the camp, uh, for sure monitor, make sure wild animals and vagrants and, you know, bad people uh, are not going to come in and hurt the children. But what would it look like if you dropped 10 boys uh, off in the wilderness for five days and also dropped off 10 girls in the wilderness for five days? How different would that experiment be? And the reason I ask, right, the reason that's where my mind goes with this is, you know, it reminds me of the poem by G.K. Chesterton, if I set the sun beside the moon, if I set the sun beside the moon, and if I set the land beside the sea, and if I set the flower beside the fruit, and if I set the town beside the country, and if I set the man beside the woman, I suppose some fool would talk about one being better. And this is the whole point, is we have to understand that boys and girls are different, yes, and when they grow up, men and women are different, yes. And the question is not, are boys better than girls? Are girls better than boys? If you're thinking of it in those terms, you're thinking of it all wrong. But the question ought to be asked, are boys better suited for certain environments and certain settings? Are men better suited for certain settings and situations? Uh, are they better suited for certain situations, certain uh, roles? Are girls better suited also for different settings, circumstances, situations, roles? 
And the conclusion I draw from this is actually that, no, and not that women should be, you know, all only interested in keeping the home, cooking, cleaning, having children, uh, you know, loving their husbands. Not that that's all that matters in life, but that is quite a lot. And boys and men are not typically as good at that. But by contrast, you know, if you drop a man and a woman off in the wilderness, a man has more characteristics or characteristics in greater quantity, typically, that are going to enable him to be successful in finding food, making shelter, protecting against dangers, taking necessary risks to build a home and to defend it and to get food for you all to eat in it. And this is not, it's not a bug. It's not a bug, a defect that men are better suited for that than women are. And it doesn't mean that women are less than in sense of, you know, being less than fully human or not deserving of honor and dignity. It doesn't mean on the flip side, vice versa, if girls are better at, you know, being uh, intuitively drawn to organizing, cooperation, cleaning, cooking, comforting, that that therefore means that they are better than boys or boys are less than girls. No, no. But the question is, for what? And why did God make us the way that he made us, where he made us? You know, how are we supposed to have a set of expectations Setting aside the, you know, whole social construct, gender is a social construct, nonsense. No, no. How are we supposed to set our expectations for our individual lives in a way that is most likely to produce a beneficial outcome, a blessed arrangement? Uh, I would say run this experiment again just because you have people coming to the wrong conclusions. Run this experiment again out in the wilderness and see what you get with the boy group and the girl group. And I think what you will conclude is that it's actually not particularly desirable that the man should be alone, right? It is not good that the man should be alone. God says it's the first thing that God ever says is not good. It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, suitable for him. Also too, I would say it is not good for the woman to be alone. And that becomes clearer in particular contexts, in particular settings. And this is not a bug. It's a feature. We are not given all the gifts in a spiritual sense in the New Testament as Christians. When Paul talks about the different members of the church, the different people who make up the church body, having different gifts, but no one member having all of the gifts, he says that this is by God's design, so that there will be mutual dependence. So we have a mystery. We have a a tension that we ought to embrace rather than rebel against, rather than resent. We ought to be content with that tension and look for how God can be honored, how we can love and honor one another with that tension that he has created us to be mutually dependent in a way that loves and serves one another. It gives us opportunity to love and serve one another and to do good works 
that were prepared beforehand for us to do in Christ Jesus. So also, you know, there's a tension between being dependent on one another and depending on one another and being dependable to one another on the one hand and on the other hand, being independent, which is also a good thing. There's also a a rightness to being independent. We read about that in Thessalonians, which I've been thinking about quite a lot here lately. Aspire to live a quiet life, Paul says, working with your hands, minding your own affairs so that you can walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So you don't want to be dependent on people who are uh, maybe pagans or godless or wicked or corrupt. You don't want to be dependent on them. Also, too, you don't want to be a burden on the saints unnecessarily. So if it's in your power to work and to bring what you have to the table and to provide for your own needs and also the needs of your own household and your extended family, and you just ripple out from there to your other spheres, if it's in your power to do that with whatever God has given you, to have that independence, strive for that. Strive for independence and dependability with how God has made you. Don't resent the differences, but rather like G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton is saying, you know, we have the sun and the moon and the land and the sea and the flower and the fruit and the town next to the country and the man beside the woman. By God's grace, all of the above have their place. And the struggle, the challenge, the opportunity is for us to search out and explore and enjoy what place each has by God's design. But moving on, speaking of dangerous boys and good girls and how we think about gender and the need for a value to be placed on masculinity as God designed us to be masculine men. He designed women to be feminine. Femininity is just a word that we use to describe what a woman is like, what characteristics women typically have, females of the species typically have. Masculine is just a word that we use to describe characteristics that men typically have by design. And one of those traits, we see it in the case of the boys left alone in this house, but you also see it when you scale up and when you do the time-lapse thing on boys as they become men, they may change the form that it takes, but they're still whacking each other over the heads and making a mess and getting into things and playing games and having fun. But one of the things that men who have been boys, all of us have been boys at one time, you know, one of the things that we're wired for is to try and make ourselves strong and uh, you know, capable, basically, of protecting our hearth and home. That is part of how God has designed us to be protective and to want to seek out strength. It is wise for us as men to try and augment our strength and to increase our strength to look for ways to do that. It is wise in our day. It is hard though. It's hard to do that without someone somewhere 
muttering something, something about toxic masculinity. And what I don't want to do as I say what I'm about to say is I don't want to burden you. If you don't have any room in your schedule whatsoever to go be hitting the gym and taking your creatine and pumping iron and getting jacked and all that, if you don't have time because your schedule is already chock full with other ways that you are augmenting your strength, which are more relevant to the dangers in your life or the opportunities in your life that you want to take advantage of in order to provide, well, that's fine, right? I don't want to burden you and present this narrow vision, which says the only way you can prove that you're a man is by dropping and giving me 20 right now, 20, 20 pushups. Take a lap. I'll time you, right? No, no. There are lots of ways that you might be disciplined and assertive and seek as a wise man in our day and age to augment your strength. And also too, you only have so much time in the day. So you can't realistically pursue all of them fully, competently, and well, and still actually do the things that you're trying to build the strength for. I'm always so terribly amused by guys who are in the gym all the time because I think to myself, yeah, but when are you actually putting that strength to use? You know, it's, it's like the super wealthy man who is a miser who builds up these huge stockpiles of wealth. And for what, right? After a certain point, it's just a waste, right? If we forget what the point is of getting that wealth or getting that strength, if we forget what the point is, well, then some people might think that's silly. That's a waste of time. I have better things to do. But one of the ways that is good, and and here's where I want to reframe the way we're thinking about these debates in a helpful way to you. One of the concerns I have is that if a man would go to the gym and he believes that that is what he ought to do, we would marginalize that. We would stigmatize that. We would say that's toxic masculinity that you are bigger and more muscular and stronger than I am in part because we're so influenced by this critical theory, cultural Marxism paradigm, which sets the strong as the oppressors, particularly if they achieve success when it comes to providing and protecting. If they achieve success there, then we say, oh, okay, well, that's less you know, virtuous or that's not socially acceptable anymore. Or in the church too often, we say, well, that's not like Christ. You know, I don't read any passages about Jesus hitting up the gym and seeing if he could get in on a, a deadlifting contest, right? We need to reframe this. On the one hand, you have the reactionary leaning into, oh, that, that irritates you guys, you soy boys, you man bun wearing effeminate, uh, you know, mama's basement dwellers. I'm going to work out even harder. I'm going to work out even earlier in the morning. I'm going to go even more often and pump that iron even harder just because it gets on your nerves. I want to get under your skin. You disgust me. You know, if that's the attitude, that's not so good. That's not so good. And I don't think that's a winning formula. 
you're playing the other guy's game and also uh, with very clever people on the more woke social justice uh, anti-toxic masculinity side of things the progressive side of things you are going to be played you, you get into playing their game and next thing you know you have been played you've been led around by the nose don't do it okay but speaking to the folks who maybe are in some cases fish in water who don't realize that they're wet who have embraced this idea that weakness is virtuous strength is at best suspect at best uh, a couple of challenges for you one like gary brashears talks about in a guide to christian theology which we are hosting in our home on friday nights provided we're not sick and it's not a major holiday we do want to be considerate of people who might have other things to go to around the holiday season now that we're through it you know we won't be missing i think until july i think the 4th of July, we are maybe taking a week off that week. But anyway, Gary Brashears, a guide to Christian theology, in one of his lectures, we're coming up on number 10 this Friday, uh, so one of his first 10, if you want to go find it, he talks about God having all of the omnis. So there's this more scholastic medieval approach that comes from Aristotelian uh, logic and philosophy. Aquinas employs it. Augustine uh, employs it to get at the nature of God, the ontology of God Almighty based on what we know from God's word. Basically, if there are good traits, then we say God not only has those traits, he has them in infinite measure. So wisdom Wisdom's a good thing. God has wisdom. In fact, God has all wisdom. And so there's a word for that that comes from the Latin, which is omnisapience. And oh, by the way, this is another way that men uh, who want to augment their strength and want to be wise, they might spend their time studying theology. That is one way that you could augment your strength uh, that would be good, particularly if you are also jacked if you are also hitting the gym and pumping that iron and uh, getting some results, you know, study theology harder than you work out so that you have humility and wisdom and your strength can be put to a good use. Don't, don't do the either or. It's not either or. Maybe listen to theology while you work out. There's a good idea. Do that. Listen to your Bible. Uh, find a good audio Bible. And listen to it while you work out. But you know, if you if you find yourself in a situation where you're looking at God's qualities, His characteristics, you you've probably had the feeling. I certainly have. I'll admit to it. Gary Brashears talks about it. When you come to strength, is strength a good thing or is it a bad thing? Ooh, ooh. I mean, our answer on that question will heavily influence which way we go when it comes to our conception of God. So it was formerly assumed that strength is a good thing. The scriptures talk about strength being a good thing. It's not the only good thing, but strength, generally speaking, is a good thing. 
And part of how I know that is because the Bible does say that God has strength. And in our wisdom literature in the Old Testament, Proverbs 24, 3 through 7, by wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Wisdom is too high for a fool. In the gate he does not open his mouth. Now this phrase here, in the gate he does not open his mouth, what's that about? Matthew Henry commentary on the whole Bible, the concise edition, reads that a weak man thinks wisdom is too high for him. Therefore, he will take no pains for it. It is bad to do evil, but worse to devise it. Even the first risings of sin in the heart are sin and must be repented of. Those that strive to make others hateful make themselves so. You know, where that necessarily all applies with regards to this verse in particular, I'm not 100% sure in verse 7, but verses 8 and 9 make more sense of it. Whoever plans to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. So we see here, we know that wisdom is good. We know that if wisdom leads to strength, strength is good. Generally speaking, it's like any tool. In the right hands, it is a godsend and a blessing. It is a gift from God to have strength. In the wrong hands, well, then maybe we see the reason for caution, like verses 1 and 2 of Proverbs 24. Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their hearts devise violence and their lips talk of trouble. How would it be if we said, well, evil men do a lot of talking, and when they talk, they say bad things, and when they say bad things in the talking, I know that talking is dangerous, and so I just won't talk. Well, I refer you back to verse 7. Wisdom is too high for a fool, and the gate he does not open his mouth. The gate here being public, the public square, if you will, the public place. He doesn't open his mouth. Why? Because he doesn't have anything to say. Sometimes he does open his mouth and he shouldn't, and then he will get trouble for it and invite a beating, as it says, other places in Proverbs. But by wisdom, a house is built. And you just scale that up to anything else and everything else that needs to be built, that is good to build, that is good to have. By wisdom, it is built. By understanding, it is established. This being distinct from building to establish something is to set it on a firm foundation, to have it actually be durable and be able to stand for a length of time and to be reliable, to be dependable. A wise man is full of strength. We need to remember that. But like Gary Brashear says, if in our day we are fish in water who don't realize we're wet so often, even in the church, we come to the biblical text with assumptions, namely, that Jesus, in order to be good, must have been weak, and therefore, for us to be like Christ, we would have to be weak as well. Therefore, we shouldn't pursue strength. We shouldn't augment our strength. We shouldn't increase our strength. To do so would put us with the evil men and the oppressors, and we don't want that because we want to be like Jesus. 
Unfortunately, that is folly. And I say unfortunately because, one, so many of us don't realize how foolish that is and how untrue it is. And you, you scale this up, this presumption that strength is bad. Strength is so closely associated with evil men that we can't redeem our concept of strength because we're afraid of being like evil men. And if someone tells us we should augment our strength, well, then we accuse them of being guilty of Proverbs 24, 1. Oh, you're just jealous, right? You're just jealous of evil men. You want what they want. You want to have what they have. You're just jealous, and so you're trying to be like them. I am trying to be like Christ. But think of the implications here for our view of God and whether it will be correct. If we say that whatever good traits there are, good qualities, good characteristics, God has them in infinite measure, what do we do when we come to strength? Historically, the church has said that God has all power. Power here just being another word for strength. He has all power. Power, therefore, is a good thing in and of itself. In part, we know this because God has all of it, and he uses it in a good way, in a righteous way, in a way that blesses us, in a way that protects us and provides for us. The word for this is omnipotence. So God is not just potent, not just strong, not just mighty. He is all powerful. He is all strong, all mighty. That's why we call him the Lord Almighty, because he is almighty. He has all the power, all of the might, all of the strength, which is to say that it is a good thing to have strength, have also humility with it and wisdom with it. If you've got to pursue one first, pursue wisdom first. But if you pursue wisdom, you will also pursue strength because the wise man increases his strength. Coming to the present and our circumstance, this is part of the reason why I cheer to read Annie Oakley over at Not to Be, January 7th, posting about a federal appeals court striking down the Trump administration's ban on bump stocks, as they're called. Bump stocks, for those of you unfamiliar, maybe you've heard about them, but you don't really know what they are. You think that a bump stock is a machine gun. It's not. It is an individual component that you might put on a modern firearm, a modern sporting rifle, like an AR-15, for instance, which allows that firearm to fire at a higher rate, at a faster rate. It is not technically the same thing as a machine gun, in part because it is an individual component on the firearm. It is not the firearm itself. It gets a little tricky, but there are accessories you can put onto a firearm that are made to be put on a firearm that are not themselves the firearm. For instance, a flashlight. A flashlight that goes on the rails, the Picatinny rails of a AR-15 is not itself a 
firearm. If the government starts saying, well, hey, we can't let you put this flashlight on there because if you put this flashlight on there, you've made the gun more lethal at nighttime when you might shoot somebody in the dark. Well, then where does it end? Right. Where, where does it end? And also, what is the underlying assumption here and presupposition with regards to strength, with regards to the capacity to use, to employ or threaten the same deadly force against a threat to you, your household, your extended family, other innocent people in your vicinity? Where does it end? Frankly, I look at God's word. And I see, yes, plenty of passages, Old Testament and New Testament, that speak to how we must restrain ourselves and be self-controlled and not use deadly force and why we shouldn't use deadly force in various contexts, in various scenarios. But if I key in on those only, my concern is I am misreading the whole counsel of God. What we also find in our Bibles, Old Testament and New Testament, are examples, scenarios, context in which it is legitimate and even required that you would employ up to and including deadly force against wild animals, for instance. If a wild animal or somebody's livestock, somebody's own personal property animal poses a threat or has actually killed a person or maimed them and we do nothing, well then God's law is very clear. We are culpable. If it was our animal and we knew that it had a history of violence or that it had killed somebody else and we kept it alive, we kept it around and then it killed somebody else, well, that's just plain murder. It's your responsibility to put that animal down when it turns out that it is a deadly threat to human life because of the created order, because God made man in his image, none of the other creatures, however glorious, splendid, wonderful, majestic, admirable, impressive they might be, none of the other animals are made in God's image. So when you must choose between an animal that is not created in God's image and man made in God's image out of reverence for God, you protect the human life and you put down the animal. But the same also applies when it comes to people. A man, for instance, and it's typically men, a man who is threatening murder, which is the unjust taking of life. He's a thief. He's a rapist. He's a murderer. He has a history of those behaviors or breathing out threats or plotting and scheming towards that end. He's been caught before attempting to do the same, or he has actually succeeded in it. The penalty is death. And that's not cruel. That is not a repudiation of what we read about turning the other cheek or about loving your enemies or doing good to those who despitefully use you. Romans 13 is very clear. The governing authority does not bear the sword for nothing. He is a minister of God to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil, to strike terror into their hearts. The governing authority. Now, this is speaking specifically about civil magistrates, but civil magistrates are not the only authorities. And in our 
context here in the United States of America in particular, there's a recognition of our rights ultimately coming from God to, among other things, keep and bear arms. And so I look at this, and it's very clear-cut. The Second Amendment is very clear-cut. The right to keep and bear arms, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. I am glad that a federal appeals court has affirmed and upheld that in their striking down, nullifying the Trump administration ban on bump stocks. That was one of the things that happened under Trump that I was most displeased with, and it was a big mistake on his part. He shouldn't have done that. But moving on, let's talk about Kevin DeYoung's review of Stephen Wolf's The Case for Christian Nationalism. I just read it this morning. I was saying in our last episode, I was planning on reading this and doing a bit of a review of the review. And it's not the first time I've engaged on this podcast with Kevin DeYoung's writings. Uh, I like what I read of Kevin DeYoung, even when I don't agree with him. And there are points here where I don't agree with him, some of the conclusions he draws. There have been some previous things he's written, mostly for TGC, uh, not surprisingly to me, which I felt like were too mild, too restrained, too conservative in the wrong sense. And there are other things he's written, particularly after Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court last summer. Uh, He didn't publish it at TGC, (laughs) interestingly. (laughs) Uh, Basically, answering the charge from many, I would say mediocre Christians, halfway up the mountain Christians in leadership in America, that we who are pro-life, who've been praying for the abolition of abortion, we shouldn't celebrate right now. Our fellow Americans are worried, they're fearful, they're scared, they're angry. It would be a bad testimony for us to celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade because it'll upset them. Kevin DeYoung wrote a fantastic rebuttal of that attitude after Roe v. Wade was overturned. It was just fantastic. And and what he used, and I love this because I am a nerd and I like Star Wars and Star Trek and Lord of the Rings and the rest, et cetera, et cetera. He used a Star Wars analogy and he posited a hypothetical alternative to how Star Wars A New Hope could have been laid out, written, directed, acted, filmed, produced, where basically, instead of going to blow up the Death Star, the Rebel Alliance led by Leia Organa and Han Solo and Luke Skywalker had a struggle session in which they questioned whether they were really you know, any better than the Empire. You know, it, hey, should we really celebrate the destruction of the Death Star? After all, there were a lot of Imperial stormtroopers on that Death Star. Should we really celebrate? I don't know if that's appropriate right now. We should probably do some soul searching about what's wrong in us that we would celebrate right now. The destruction of a device used for blowing up planets full of innocent people. You know, and it's just absurd, right? It's it's an absurd example. It is satirical, but it makes the point, I think, brilliantly about what is wrong in 
telling people to not celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That's some blind guides type advice and counsel from so-called Christian pastors. That is the converted who were supposed to be the ones calling for repentance to the culture. The missionaries went out and have become more like the world instead of the other way around, instead of being salt and light. But I read this piece, right? This piece, The Rise of Right-Wing Wokeism, and I don't in any way, shape, or form suspect Kevin DeYoung of being woke. I don't think his criticisms of Stephen Wolf are in bad faith. I think he is trying to be something of a peacemaker. I think even just his being a feature at TGC is indicative of a certain toleration for more progressive types. TGC being co-founded by Tim Keller speaks volumes, and I can't get that bad taste out of my mouth. I just can't. Tim Keller is a social justice warrior in (laughs) uh, church clothes. He is a social justice warrior through and through. And that Kevin DeYoung would partner with the likes of Tim Keller. You know, I I couldn't. I'll put it that way. I couldn't do it. I wouldn't be able to. And yet, at the same time, I can disagree with Kevin DeYoung and still admire and respect that his moral compass uh, is, by God's grace, if not pointing true north always, you know, even when it wobbles a little bit because we're walking and hiking, that's life, right? That That's life. And so you cut him some slack, you give him some grace there in an appropriate way. But nevertheless, I do disagree. I have some meaningful disagreements with some of his criticisms of Stephen Wolf, particularly towards the end. I see some of the same pushback in Kevin DeYoung's article review, lengthy review, that I have heard elsewhere, for instance, when Andrew Clavin interviewed Stephen Wolf over at the Daily Wire to talk about the case for Christian nationalism, his biggest question for Stephen Wolf was, how do we get there, right? I mean, it's, it's hard to even imagine, based on where we're at right now, how we would ever potentially chart a course to what you're describing with America being a ostensibly self-consciously Christian nation. Again, you know, I'll grant, I'll grant, Kevin DeYoung says it, Andrew Clavin says it, I say it. The United States of America was more Christian at its founding than it is now. That is to say, and we all know what is meant by that, not that the United States of America is, to a man, a Christian nation in the sense that We're all going to go to heaven if we were alive in America, regardless of personal faith in Jesus. No, no, that's not what's meant. That's not what anybody means by that. Don't be silly. But it is to say that the institutions of the United States of America sought to honor Christ and gave deference to God's word and to what Christ taught, what he commanded, what he did, who he is who he was, who he always will be. They gave deference to the Old Testament, to the law of Moses. Yes, 
Yes, to the law of Moses. Some of you might be too young to remember, but several years ago, it was a big controversy that the Ten Commandments monuments were being removed from courthouses and public spaces all across the U.S. They were being removed, though, because they were there. I mean, that's that's an important thing to remember. They were being removed, but they couldn't have been removed if they hadn't been there in the first place, which is to say they were there in the first place. And so Stephen Wolf, I mean, he's he's got some really great points. I also disagree with Stephen Wolf, by the way, on some of the same things. I, I find common cause with Kevin DeYoung uh, over and against certain attitudes, you might say, in what Stephen Wolf has said in interviews. I haven't read his book yet myself. I was doing well to read Kevin DeYoung's lengthy review of the book, actually. <laughs> I'm waiting for the audiobook. I mean, as soon as that comes out, I will read it. I hope that it comes out soon. Stephen Wolf, if you're listening, uh, hey, help a brother out. <laughs> but but here's the thing, right? As I'm looking at Kevin DeYoung's review of Stephen Wolf's book, and now I'm giving you a review of a review of a review of not just American history relative to the Christian faith, but the history of Western civilization relative Christian faith. And I don't know that I love the claim that this is as good as it gets and just be happy, be content. You know, that and maybe I'm maybe I'm being unfair to Kevin DeYoung to put it in those terms. He asks towards the end, if the American experiment has failed, I'd like to know which country in the past 250 years has gotten a passing grade. He has a very wise way of reframing. Also, he says, when talking about earthly realities, it's always helpful to ask the question compared to what? And that's wise indeed. Dennis Prager talks about that as well. Uh, and on his program, I know I've heard him mention it a few times. Compared to what? We can get pie in the sky or the sky is falling. If we're not careful, this is one of the big benefits to studying history. It gives you perspective. Read The Forge of Christendom, for instance, about the approach of the year 1000 AD and how Christian Europe was just sure that the second coming of Christ was around the corner. You had people, Christians, as Christians did in the first century AD, selling all that they had, joining convents and monasteries and waiting on rooftops. You had Vikings coming down from the north, you had Muslims coming up from the south, you had bad weather, catastrophically bad weather, you had disease and plague wreaking havoc. It was it was a mess. And also it was, you know, a thousand years. Hey, 1,000 years, we're coming up on it. Maybe the millennial kingdom was what we just enjoyed, experienced past thousand years. Christ is just about to return. It was, all, it was almost like a Y2K kind of a moment, except you can conclude some things about the difference between America coming up on the year 2000 and Europe coming up on the year 1000. You, you can derive some meaningful uh, <laughs> observations about the social imaginary, as I've been talking about here recently. They were thinking, ah, 
Christ is coming again. The year 2000 rolls around and we're all just worried about our computers crashing. As some of us, we're probably thinking, well, okay, if, if all of our computers crash, well, then Christ has to come back because how are we going to live without all of our computers? Which is just silly, by the way. But compared to what? Right? Compared to what? I think, to be fair to Stephen Wolf, that that is what he has set out to do, is answer the question of compared to what? And we look at where we're at right now, the legalization of abortion and then subsequent underwriting of abortion, protection of abortion, expansion of abortion by Democrats, first and foremost, with Republican help, don't get me wrong, at strategic times and places, uh, that's, that's also something to say, you know, compared to what about the so-called Respect for Marriage Act in which religious liberties are really, you know, supposedly they were going to be protected. David French says, oh, it's going to be worth it. Republicans should vote for this. It's a good thing that they vote for this because we need to protect religious liberties. That's all we've got left. But also, too, they've got to codify Obergefell versus Hodges. It was a cowardly thing uh, for French to write, as he did, in defense of the Respect for Marriage Act. And basically... You know, what, what I read from that was, we will affirm, I will affirm your homosexuality and call it marriage and thereby contribute to abolishing the whole idea of marriage, which doesn't belong to us anyways, it belongs to God, and God will not be mocked. I will kiss the ring for your gay marriage and transgenderism after that, and pedophilia is coming right up. Next week on Whose Line Is It Anyway? America edition, where we just improv, where the rules are made up and the points don't matter because we just print new points anytime we need to give points out, <laughs> thereby devaluing the points. Uh, David French, the, the reality of the David Frenches in the American church also deserves the question compared to what? And this is where I want Doug Wilson, and I want Stephen Wolf, and I want Kevin DeYoung, and I want David French to be a part of this debate. And I don't like the idea that because Stephen Wolf is saying some upsetting things, that therefore is a reason to throw out with bathwater certain babies here. No, no. This, this is getting a conversation going. That needs to be had. And as I said, as I was teasing, doing a review of Kevin DeYoung's review of the case for Christian nationalism, it's a provocative title here at TGC. It's the kind of title you would expect, actually, at TGC. And its saving grace is that Kevin DeYoung wrote it. But the rise of right-wing wokeism is, it, it, you know, it, it gets your attention. I'm not convinced that Stephen Wolf is right-wing wokeism. What I have said, and I hold to this, is that this embrace by some of Christian nationalism is the response to wokeism. I, I said that right away. I said that from the start. Christian nationalism being embraced by the likes of Canon Press and that crowd is 
It is the response to woke Christianity. And to my way of thinking, the compared to what, it actually is necessary for us to answer that question. Christian nationalism, that's a terrible idea. Yeah, but compared to woke Christianity, it's not so bad. Maybe not so bad. Does it need to be moderated? Yes. Can we moderate it if you just dismiss it out of hand? I I don't think so. I don't think you can. Now, here's where I stand on this. I am a contrarian in part because I want to live a quiet life, working with my hands, having a good reputation before outsiders, being dependent on no one. I want to walk properly before outsiders, but I also want to keep myself unspotted from the world. And I think this is something that comes down to me, particularly on my dad's side of the family, where they were Mennonites in eastern Montana for generations, came out and homesteaded there when the state was young. Mennonites, eastern Montana, harsh weather, speaking of, brutal conditions, farming in brutal uh, alternating patterns of drought and frost and hail and wildfires. The keep oneself unspotted from the world relative religion that God the Father finds pure and acceptable, pure and undefiled, that was a very important priority and value for the Mullet family in eastern Montana and still is, I would say, and it's been passed down through the generations. And so I want to walk properly before outsiders. I also want to keep myself unspotted from the world, unstained from the world. And so I'm a bit of a contrarian, if you haven't noticed. And it's not that I want to be contentious. In fact, nothing would please me more than if we could all sit down and have a meaningful discussion about these things which all too often are controversial because we have an asthmatic relationship with disagreement. We have the least little bit of upset, hurt feelings, offense taken, because we're not practiced in debate, employing rhetoric and reason and logic and facts. Now, you can say all you want about some people need to not listen to Ben Shapiro so much or Jordan Peterson so much or Doug Wilson so much, what have you. The reason why they are such lightning rods for criticism and also at the same time attract so many young men who want to hear everything that they have to say commentary-wise, both and at the same time simultaneously is because they are modeling something which is all too rare. It is far too rare and uncommon that we would say, come, let us reason together, that we would let our reasonableness be evident and apparent to all. How do you do that if your definition of a good Christian testimony requires falling silent anytime there's going to be a disagreement? Well, I don't, want to, I don't want to offend that person. Well, then you're not going to persuade them either. That's not strong. That's not courageous. It's not wise. A better response would be for us to try to have these important discussions. And if it goes off the rails right quick, all right, let's take a step back, reassess the situation, 
and see if maybe what we need to talk about is how do we talk about these things? I think we need to have a discussion about how to have these important, meaningful discussions. Now, for instance, I, and here's another thing I agree with Kevin DeYoung on. For instance, by all means, let's chide the folks whose shtick it is to mock man buns. I have a cousin who's got a podcast as well. There's a minister who's a nuthetic counselor, and he is employing a shtick, and I want to hit him with it. Because the intro to his podcast is mocking women who don't know how to meal plan and men who have man buns and soy boys and all the rest. And it's needlessly obnoxious. For that matter, too, some of what is quoted by Kevin DeYoung of the case for Christian nationalism could use a tune-up. For instance, from page 469 to 470, and I quote, Christian nationalism should have a strong and austere aesthetic. I was dismayed when I saw the attendees of a recent PCA General Assembly, men in wrinkled short-sleeve golf shirts sitting plump in their seats. We have to do better. Pursue your potential. Lift weights, eat right, and lose the dad bod. We don't all have to become bodybuilders, but we ought to be men of power and endurance. We cannot achieve our goals with such a flabby aesthetic vision and under the control of modern nutrition. Sneering at this aesthetic vision, which I fully expect to happen, is pure cope. Grace does not destroy T levels. Grace does not perfect testosterone into estrogen. If our opponents want to be fat, have low testosterone, and chug vegetable oil, let them. It won't be us. End quote. Now, I see this, and I <clears throat> I believe he has a point. I believe Stephen Wolf has a point here, and that he's not far off, actually. You know, Kevin DeYoung says that Wolf thinks all this is concerning, that he wrote it down is extra troubling. You insert here uh, the word problematic, potentially, and, and take care. Uh, Kevin, you... You are an admirable, godly man, but take care here because he needs a tune-up. Stephen Wolf needs a tune-up, but he is not far off. He's not far from the kingdom. <laughs> I do think there's a shtick that's being leaned into. You know, I'll give you another example. And this guy actually uh, used to attend some of the community church back in the day where we are members and attend now. I didn't know this until very recently, but he runs the podcast, Hard Men, the Hard Men podcast. And uh, I've only listened to one of his episodes, but he did a review of It's Good to Be a Man, which is actually up next on my reading list. I hope to start it today uh, listening to It's Good to Be a Man. I've had it on the reading list for oh a year or two at this point, maybe. Not long after it came out, I put it on my wish list, but I haven't gotten to it in part because I think to myself, you're preaching to the converted here. I already agree that it's good to be a man. I'll read things that I don't already know. Thank you. <laughs> but I listened to this Hard Men podcast episode and he's better about it. Okay. He's better about it. But he's still pushing buttons and flipping switches and turning knobs that amount to my trained ear to pursuing a certain shtick too much. It, it's 
Not as bad as I've seen. It's not as bad as I've heard, but it could be better still. It needs a tune-up. Stephen Wolf's messaging here needs a tune-up. And what I would love to see is the tweaking be a two-way street. Because also, too, at the same time as I say, the messaging and the mocking of the man buns and the women who don't know how to meal plan, uh, as, as much as that needs reworked, it also has a point. It's not entirely off the mark. Another quote Kevin DeYoung uh, sees as concerning and troubling that Stephen Wolf wrote it down on women and credentialism. As academic institutions, this is a quote from page 453 of the case for Christian nationalism, as academic institutions cater to and graduate more and more women, credentialism is on the rise. This is why women place their credentials, doctor or PhD or professor or even MA in theology, in their social media name. Well, uh, he's right. He's right, though. Is it bad for a woman to get an education? No. Do we potentially have creeping feminism or not creeping? It's already here. It's been here. It's set up shop. It thinks it's here to stay forever and ever in the church. Um, yeah. Yep. Where do we go with that? Ah, that's another question. That's a different question compared to what? Uh, that's a fair question, but let's answer it right? Let's answer that question. Let's work together on answering that question, I say. The problem with progress, page 436, and I quote, every step of progress is overcoming you. Ask yourself, what sort of villain does each event of progress have in common? The straight white male. That is the chief outgroup of new America, the embodiment of regression and oppression, end quote. All right, here, uh, is he wrong? No. But compared to what? Once again, compared to what? Could this use a tune-up? Sure. Does it also represent a needful corrective to the tune-up that the progressive church represented, I think, no better than at TGC in many cases among the Reformed uh, needs? Semper Reformanda is a two-edged sword here. Stephen Wolf writes about gynocracy in page 448, and I quote, We live under a gynocracy, a rule by women. This may not be apparent on the surface, since men still run many things, but the governing virtues of America are feminine vices associated with certain feminine virtues, such as empathy, fairness, and equality, end quote. This is too true. If it's not totally true, if it's not absolutely true, if it's slightly hyperbolic or there are exceptions to the rule, it's too true nevertheless. And to the extent that it's too true even in the church, Semper Reformanda should have us sitting down and discussing what God's word says, not throwing stones at somebody who says, hey, this is not biblical. This is not godly. You know, the compared to what question should be answered by God's word. And we can all say that, right? All sides of a debate could say that potentially and come to dramatically different conclusions, I grant. But I am concerned that there's an asthmatic approach to disagreement, which is coming to the fore in dismissing out of hand 
a lot of the points that are valid in what Stephen Wolf has to say here. Oh, it's, it's concerning that you even think that. It's troubling that you even wrote that down. I, you know, it's not, though. It's not. Because for one, if you're wrong and you just said it, now we can deal with it. Now we can address it. Now it's been brought out into the open. This is exactly why the censorship regime on social media is never going to work or it will make things far worse as far as people having bad ideas, wicked ideologies. You censor a man, silence him. You haven't persuaded him. You haven't convinced him. You haven't instructed him. You haven't corrected him. You haven't taught him. You haven't edified him. You've just shut him up for now. Here. He will still take those ideas somewhere else. And if he's wrong and it's so self-evident that he's wrong, then argue your case. Debate it. And within the church, from God's word. The allergic reaction, the asthmatic reaction to some needful reforms being brought by the likes of Stephen Wolf here or Doug Wilson, who was instrumental in the case for Christian nationalism being published at Canon Press, promoted by Canon Press, causing limitless consternation to the woke Christian types. the, The calls for reform... They ought to be heard out and debated, not reacted to with a dismissive wave of the hand and uh, chanting of the mantra of unity. Because actually, Doug Wilson, Stephen Wolf, if they're wrong on some things, persuade them. If they need to shore up some vulnerabilities, some weaknesses, well then point those out. By all means, that's not, you know, far be it from me to say we're having an allergic reaction on that side of it. And then when specific points are objected to, criticized, then folks like you and me say, ah, okay, you know, you're not listening. Well, Kevin DeYoung, I, I'm sure, read Wolf's book closely and carefully. I think he's listening. He's not persuaded. But see, he can listen carefully and not be persuaded, and that can be okay. And we're good so far. And it still be something to watch out for that some of what's in Wolf's book is being dismissed like a baby thrown out with bathwater. Some of these quotes are actually uh, not at all troubling, really. If Stephen Wolf is ranting, okay, let's not rant. That's what Kevin DeYoung says. He says the epilogue gives the whole book a different feel. Wolf's epilogue purports to answer the question, now what? But the chapter consists of a string of loosely connected topics that can fairly be described as a 38-part rant. And then he lists examples like the ones I've been reading for you, quotes directly from the book, to justify his conclusion that it's just a rant. To that, I would say, if we read Martin Luther, we see similar type ranting. And I, for instance, I read Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will, not long ago. And I thought to myself a few things. One, you make some really strong points, some really worthy, worthwhile points, and I'm glad you make many of those. You might even be right in your conclusions, but also you're kind of a jerk. And Martin Luther's kind of a jerk. (laughs) We should admire the guts 
that it took for Martin Luther to say what he did, given the circumstances, at the time that he did, to whom he said these things, in as public a way as he did, and simultaneously guard our hearts from an overzealous admiration of Luther that would cause us to be exactly like him when we get into a disagreement. Speaking of needing a tune-up, Martin Luther needed a tune-up. He could have used an editor. But part of (laughs) the struggle for Kevin DeYoung in writing a review here that would be persuasive of the people who like what Stephen Wolf is putting down is that we are so burnt out on being edited by the woke Christian types. We are so over it. We're so burnt out with not being reformed so much as bullied into obscurity and irrelevance. Censored by the secular woke types in big tech, threatened by the secular woke types in government, mocked by the secular woke types in Hollywood and in the music industry and in academia, and then anathematized by the so-called woke Christians in the church. We're so over that. I don't think from what I've heard of Stephen Wolf, from what I've read thus far of Stephen Wolf, I don't think this is right-wing wokeism. I do disagree with some of where Stephen Wolf is going. I think he needs a tune-up, but I actually am more glad than concerned that he's written what he's written and is saying what he's saying because compared to what is a double-edged sword that I think he would say he is bringing to bear on the woke status quo, the social justice warrior mindset that comes through in so many TGC, T4G type institutions that try to find the lowest common denominator when it comes to doctrine in the interest of Christian unity, and as a consequence, stand for nothing, like Carl Truman's The Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. He disagrees with progressive Mark Knowles' famous book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, that the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's not much of an evangelical mind. Carl Truman goes a little upstream and says, actually, the real scandal is that there's not much of an evangelical. And that's because we can't we can't agree on, I mean, we can't disagree. <laughs> that's also true. Slip of the tongue there. That might be more correct. I mean, we, we can't agree on what the evangelion is. We can't agree about the gospel. The gospel coalition, it's right there in the name. But we can't agree about what the gospel actually even is. More to the point, one side of the debate is allowed to disagree and criticize and deconstruct And the other side is so tired, so frustrated about being silenced again and again and again and again, even in the church, because these ideas, they are so primordial. They're so foundational to the kind of relationships that we have with each other. The kinds of discussions we end up having are really not debates. They're really not edifying all too often. They're really not substantive or persuasive all too often. You know, I note, I was having a conversation with 
I won't say who or even what their prompt was, but someone I know here in the Greeley-Evans area. And the topic of a local Christian school and its attitude towards sports or book learning is very tepid. And there apparently are a whole lot of churches that come together to support this local Christian school, Dayspring Academy. And these churches do not all agree as it relates to doctrine or how conservative we should be or how moderate we should be or how progressive we should be. And as such, when they have troubled youth in the school who are misbehaving, whose parents are not even taking them to church, requiring them to go to church. They come to school, they get into trouble, they're out of control, they have bad attitudes. The administration of the school, what I hear from a parent who sends their kids to the school, the administration of the school has a really hard time drawing any boundaries anywhere that are meaningful because we think that just being together you know, if Christ's name is painted on the wall somewhere and we call ourselves a Christian school, then just by virtue of getting together in the same room, we're unified. Ho, 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 not so fast. I see it at every level. That is a common root. I think we saw this recently with the controversy about the House Speakership. Kevin McCarthy ended up winning out after a week of hyperbolic diatribes back and forth, but especially leveled at the House Freedom Caucus Republicans who were refusing to vote for him. It was the first time in a century that the House Speaker had not been picked on the first vote and people couldn't handle it. How sad is that? That speaks to weakness. And I think actually the more that we regard weakness as a virtue, the more we will have weakness. What we affirm, what we tolerate, what we celebrate, what we encourage is what we'll continue, what we will get more of. Again, and I got to leave you with this final thought, and you can go read the full Kevin DeYoung review of Christian nationalism for yourself. But my perspective is not that we should drop everything and try to bring about a Christian nation at all costs, through any means necessary, right now. Drop everything. Quit your job. Leave your family behind. Load up your guns and ammunition. Storm the capitals. I, I am not on board with that. But here's what I predict. Here's what I anticipate as a student of history and as a student of God's word, as a student of church history, for one, as a student of Western history in particular, for another thing. I predict that this unsustainable current status quo must give way and that when it does we will see an opportunity for an echo of what happened with the collapse of rome america is the new rome when america comes to the end of its tether the woke types will destroy themselves and one another as such types always do in the end If Christians have an allergic reaction to strength, to having strength themselves, to embodying strength, to having strong minds, strong bodies, 
strong character, strong institutions. If Christians have an allergic reaction to even the concept of public service, taking part in the civil administration, the civil government, reforming, auditing, overhauling, holding accountable government institutions, or building them back from scratch, if we have an allergic reaction to that, we are going to biff it. We might not be biffing it right now to be in the vulnerable position that we are, humanly speaking. But the types of arguments, the types of attitudes and presuppositions, the foot placement that I see right now is not practicing for future success if God gives us an opportunity to run for political office, to win political office, to be in a position of governing authority as a minister of God of the kind talked about in Romans 13. I do not agree with the view that Christians, because his kingdom is not of this world, lest his children fight, therefore cannot serve in law enforcement, serve in the military, serve in government positions. That's an Anabaptist view. That has been a historical view of Christians, but I reject that and most of church history, most of the Christians throughout church history, I would say, have not agreed with that view, that position. It's a misguided reading of certain key passages and a complete neglect of other relevant passages to the topic at hand. As such, if this is all going to collapse at a certain point, I do not want us to have a flat-footed attitude and to just then start thinking about it, start get the wheels a-turning. And you can say, well, we're going to cross that bridge when we come to it. And I say the bridge might be burned down by the woke so-called Christians before we get to it if you don't think rightly about all scripture being, being breathed out by God and profitable. Now, you know, almost irrelevant is whether that day comes because right now we should be thinking rightly about the whole counsel of God as it pertains to our engagement in the welfare of the city. Jeremiah 29, seeking the welfare of the city. Isaiah chapter 3, my people, women rule over you and infants are your oppressors. We're in the Isaiah 3 stage right now, headed for the book of Judges again. <laughs> Everyone just doing what's right in their own eyes. If we're not already there, I suppose the book of Judges comes before Isaiah 3. And so it's hard saying, but I'd say a really good place to start is to practice deliberation, being reasonable, letting your reasonableness be evident to all. I would say that would be a really, really good place to start. Always being prepared to give an answer for the reason of the hope that lies within you to anyone who asks in gentleness and respect. I would say that's a really good place to start. And, hey, why not on the basis of a book about Christian nationalism, if that's what it takes? You know, right now, you know, the reactions to the case for Christian nationalism maybe are a little too close to this docu-series about what happens when you put 10, 11, 12-year-old boys in a house by themselves for five days. What happens when you put 10, 11, 12-year-old girls in a house by themselves for five days? It's a little too close to that. And Stephen Wolf, he might need a tune-up, but he is not far off in his observation regarding 
the manliness of too many churchmen in America, the unmanliness of so many, and how that has been incentivized, that has been spiritualized. Check it out. See what you think. Let me know what you think, for that matter. You know where to reach me. Drop me a line. Send me a message. I'll put a link for this review at thegospelcoalition.org by Kevin DeYoung of Stephen Wolf's book, The Case for Christian Nationalism. Also, as promised, I'll include a link to the piece by Megan Quinn over at yourtango.com. You can watch some video clips there of this social experiment about the boys and the girls. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.